Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is always a celebration, usually on a 30-day basis, maybe a little longer, to have Gideon Rose of Foreign Affairs Magazine. I will state it directly. It's so good, you don't need not only the obligatory modern digital copy, <coughs> excuse me, you have to pay up Gideon for the thick paper copy as well with a beautiful, big, readable font, which is the article as you look at the deep state. As you look at Trump and our allies, which is the article that stuck out for you? So we have a great piece uh, by uh, a professor uh, at UC Law School um, that is basically saying the problem with Trump and the deep state is not the deep state. It's just the state. Just like the administration's uh, attacks on fake news, their problems aren't on fake news. It's just news. So their problems are this is an administration that doesn't really believe in governing the country or running the administration. The president doesn't believe much in running the U.S. government. And the government is essentially re- uh, uh, returning the, the favor uh, by resisting. And uh, the the gap between... A system set up to run the country, run the government, actively intervene mm-hmm. for the public behalf is now being run by somebody who has a, not just a separate agenda, but no real interest in oh. the broader apparatus. And that is uh, creating problems. Obviously. But the fact is he got elected by a large body of people who don't want traditional politics. Do we want traditional foreign affairs? Well, so this is basically the kind of Look, this ties in Trump and Brexit, right? So what's happening in Brexit? If you get elected on a stupid but popular program that doesn't really have a practical component to it, then when you get into office, you have to figure out what to do to live up to your promise, right? That's what the problem with Brexit right now is. They got stuck with an agenda and now have to figure out how to make that agenda work when nobody actually wants it to work or thinks it should work, uh, except the people who voted for it. The people in power having to implement it don't believe it. So now you have the same thing to a certain extent in the U.S. in which the president got elected on a populist nationalist agenda that he actually still obviously feels beholden to those constituents, as we saw from the Charlottesville type stuff. Um, And yet that's not really a possible agenda for governing the country. And so what happens when the campaign reality meets the governing reality uh, is something that basically nobody knows. That's why we're in this weird state now in which nobody actually knows what's going on because we've never seen anything like this. The exact, the, the degree of political this is the first time ever kind of stuff, mm-hmm. cannot be exaggerated, even as the economy seems stable and normal and markets are going up and everything is calm. So it really is a kind of where you're looking determines how right. freaked out you are. But Gideon, at the same time, it, you know, Donald Trump, your president, was elected on a very clear agenda of policy, right? Health care, tax reform and infrastructure. When is he going to focus on the actual policy that he can get through Congress? See, I don't actually think he was uh, elected on those policy agendas. He never actually set out real policies on those things. They were urges. They were emotions. Infrastructure was, I'm going to do something for the public. He doesn't actually care about infrastructure or else he would have turned to it in the government. Even on some of the policy issues, like health care, as we saw, 
law, there was a negative thing. We don't like Obamacare. But there was no actual positive program, which is why they had no actual health care uh, legislation uh, to, to put in place. I don't think they're going to get any significant legislation uh, going forward. It's possible. But the same problems that bedeviled them uh, with a real agenda and putting together a sort of bipartisan or even a single Republican agenda on major issues is going to continue to bedevil them throughout the fall. I know we've asked this on radio. Who does he listen to? Who does the president? First of all, does the president listen to anyone at this point? Well, (laughs) that sort of depends on who you talk to. Nobody actually knows um, because what you tend to see is the president talking to lots of people and then changing his line to a certain extent, depending on who he's talked to, and then finally bending to some reality, but then going back to what he was saying before. At this point, we do not know who the president listens to. You mentioned it, Gideon, you've said this many times, that, 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 you know, to use the cliche, Foggy Bottom is significantly understaffed right now. How does it actually play out? What does it mean for Secretary Tillerson that there aren't the Richard Hosses beneath that can provide wisdom? What I have heard is that, um, look, the the Secretary of State usually has two different jobs. There's managing the president and running U.S. foreign, you know, running running the White House and the administration's foreign policy and working up. There's also managing the building and the State Department and the the administration and running that. Uh, I've heard essentially that Tillerson is focused almost entirely on the White House and the president and keeping things sensible on policy and that the so he's not paying much attention to the State Department and the things they've said about the State Department, the lack of staffing, the budget cuts, the reorganization are scaring the crap out of everybody. Uh, so the, the State Department essentially is entirely becalmed uh, and the lack of policy advice of people, there's no lack of people who could supply policy advice. The problem is that the people in the White House making the decisions don't, uh, well, at least the, the top person doesn't seem to care about that kind of policy advice. Gideon, do we understand if President Trump is losing a little bit of popularity with his base? And actually, if he does, d- does, does, he cha- does that explain a little bit of what we saw in Charlottesville? Well, so this gets to this question of sort of uh, a tipping point, right? Clearly, the poll figures have dropped, but they've dropped minusculely. They've dropped, you know, a point or two a month if on the, a- on the a- average in aggregate. And the question is, if that continues going down from the high, the low 40s to the high 30s, where it is now, if it continues to go from the low high 30s to the low 30s, at what point does the base become a sort of albatross rather than a source of support? And we ju- we're not there yet. Things have held, uh, but another few months, we may be in a different situation. I, I look, Gideon, at where we are, and I think it, it comes back to the Basevich story. Uh, we're talking, particularly after Charlottesville, about nationalists. Forget about supremacists. It's not really foreign affairs, but the sense of nationalism. Where is the new conservative nationalism that is that is constructive? Well, this is actually the great question, and and I think we're going to be looking more at this in years to come. There are some actual legitimate thinkers on the right, people like Yuval Levin or Yoram Hazoni or elsewhere or people like Basevich, who are trying to think about what a positive and constructive civic nationalist agenda could be that ties the country together but that isn't necessarily – a nationalism directed against somebody, right? The question is, how do you have an inclusive nationalism? The problem with so much of the agenda of the administration is that it seems designed to provide communal solidarity for its team, 
by creating an opponent or an enemy, whether it's Korea, whether it's illegal immigrants, whether it's Mexicans, whether it's God knows what. And the the real challenge for civic nationalism uh, in the, you know, 21st century is to figure out how you can get the benefits of tying your community together, how you can have social solidarity and a constructive sense of purpose, but in a way that is inclusive and that plays well with other groups rather than having your solidarity generated simply by opposition in hatred of something else. And that's what we're still groping for. What is the positive American program that can lead the world? Uh, and lead the country rather than divide things. Francine Lacroix in London. Francine, we're now going to go to the smartest article I have seen in the last, I'm saying, 72 hours. Maybe it's four days. Who's counting? With Gideon Rose. He's uh, the editor-in-chief of Foreign Affairs magazine, another triumph of issue, on thoughtful discussion and different views. The power of foreign affairs is the many different views across a political uh, spectrum. Uh, Gideon... Uh, Jeff Greenfield in Politico has just wrote the best article I've seen on what happens if we don't know our history. It is just profound. It alludes to the president. It talks about Earl Butts, which is a name from another time and place. Um, The former secretary of agriculture resigned in disgrace. How dumb are we, Gideon Rose, day to day, away from the PhDs and the fancy experts? How dumb are we on our international relations? It's not so much that we're dumb. I think that most people are concerned with and follow carefully the things that matter to them in their daily lives, and they have a good sense of that. And most people are not directly involved in foreign policy and foreign affairs. One of the privileges of being the world's hegemon, the leading power, is that uh, our actions affect others more than their actions affect us. So it's kind of rational for Americans not to pay all that much attention. Unfortunately, they what the problem is not their ignorance or lack of knowledge or lack of uh, uh, concern, it's that the things they know that aren't necessarily true, right? And um, the this administration right now is increasingly becoming, losing all credibility. It's, it's becoming either uh, a pariah or a laughingstock. And the question that we're now facing is, what is connected to what? Uh, the, the great question of the day, we're learning tons of things right now about how the world works. The economy, for example, and markets seem disconnected from politics. We're now having a wonderful test in that. Uh, we, we heard during the Obama administration, during the red line with Syria crisis, if you remember that, it was all this talk about, oh, my God, the terrible negative consequences that are going to flow from the president not living up to his word, right? So uh, critics of the Obama administration legitimately and appropriately slammed Obama for making a red line promise on Syria and then not living up to it. Right. And that was supposedly something that caused other powers elsewhere to uh, take advantage of the U.S., do other kinds of things. Academic experts and credibility said, no, you know, that's actually not true. Credibility isn't universal. Uh, people don't actually look at everything in regard to the last thing you said and, and, and evaluate that. And I think we're seeing that play out now. The administration has no credibility. The pro, Rather, the president has no credibility. And even his advisors are seen as people trying to control him rather than actually speak independently. But <laughs> The question of whether that right. affects anything real, why, really in policy is, is something we've never seen before. 
Right, but Gideon, you could argue that this is why we have elections, right? It's not up to me or Tom or anyone else to look at foreign policy. We elect people that know best and actually, you know, try and protect our, our interests. If the president cannot do this, how does the GOP or the Republican Party keep that in line? Well, that's uh, that's what we're watching, right? And you're right. This is ultimately a political thing. The American people, just like the British people, uh, chose Brexit. The American people chose Donald Trump uh, in, a, in a free and fair election, and uh, they're now getting the consequences. And the ultimate remedy will be a political one, right, in the sense that uh, the administration has an agenda or it doesn't. It has a legislative uh, track record or it doesn't. And eventually there'll be new elections, both at the congressional level for Congress and then the presidential level, and life will go on. The American system will hold. This is not Venezuela. We don't just have Donald Trump. We have Donald Trump and James Madison. So we do have a constructive framework in which to keep politics going. The question is what the policy substance of that will be. And what you're saying with the Republicans, nobody knows. And I would point out, as you mentioned, Venezuela, one reason foreign affairs gets it done is Shannon O'Neill on Mexico and some of the challenges of Latin America as well. Gideon Rose, thank you so much for starting uh, this month's issue of Foreign Affairs with Bloomberg uh, Surveillance. Bonus round, folks. It's uncommonly September thicker. It's got, it's like, it's like Elle or Vogue or Harper's Bazaar. It's, 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 it's that September autumnal issue, Francine. It's just thicker. I know. I like it. It means we're getting back to work. No, no, not the swims. No, no, we're not going to go there, Mr. Tucker. (laughs) It's not the swimsuit issue. It's like foreign affairs is like Harper's Bazaar in September. They do more. Anyways, Gideon Rose, thank you. Neil Sauce with us, who's never boring, and provided incredible perspective for us, important perspective in August of 2007. Neil, we've done this before, but in the 10th anniversary here of where we are, in the, in the trenches of Credit Suisse economics, you came up with this idea of ring fence. What are we ring fencing today? Is it the balance sheets of the central bank, or are we ring fencing disinflation? Are we ring fencing the desire for investment by corporations, what is it? Uh, I, th- I think the answer is volatility. Uh, the um, most volatile financial instruments, uh, let's say in the U.S. financial markets, uh, would include mortgages. Well, the Federal Reserve owns a fair amount of them. They're at the threshold of reducing that holding. But while they were holding it, obviously that took volatility out of the markets and sequestered it, so to speak. Similarly, with the longer-term coupon holdings, bond holdings of treasuries, in Europe, uh, the peripheral debt, uh, the corporate debt that the ECB has put onto its balance sheet, uh, in Japan, similar kinds of uh, developments, it's one of the forces, I think, that has given rise, forgive the uh, yeah. change of language, so to speak, change of tense, <clears throat> it's given rise to the fall of volatility. I mean, the fall of volatility is is there. There seems to be a clarion call, whether in England or uh, in the United States, worldwide, for further investment. Is one of the reasons why we're not getting investment, why things are dampened, why we're a lack of volatility is just there's too much stuff out there? I mean, that, that's been a cliche that you and I have avoided for decades. But are we in an age of oversupply? 
Oh, I, I think the evidence with respect to how difficult it is to get inflation to move is suggestive of that. You know, when there was a time when monetarists told us that inflation came from large central bank balance sheets. Well, we've been, we've been doing that for quite some time, and the evidence is that the inflation hasn't manifested itself. Then there were others who told us, well, if you get to near full employment, you're going to get inflation. Well, unemployment rates have been falling in the U.S. for quite some time uh, to relatively low levels, uh, similarly in the U.K., similarly in Japan, remarkably in Japan. Uh, even in, in continental Europe, uh, unemployment at least is now down, down to single digits, and there's no evidence in particular of, of wage pressures uh, anywhere. But, but it, you know, you think about the technological change that was fracking, for example, and yes, we have uh, more oil supply uh, at any price than we used to have. That's a good thing, not no. a bad thing. Let's come back with Neil Sauce. We're going to run out of time here, and I want Francine to dive into the next block with us as well. Francine, you really wonder about the ring fence. What is the ring fence, Francine, of Brexit? What is Prime Minister May trying to ring fence right now? Well, it's unclear at this moment. We have a lot of business leaders, Tom, that have gone to see the prime minister saying, please ring fence uh, services, financial services, because they're so important. But as negotiation starts, then for the moment, we're not really clear on the rights also of EU nationals living here. So it's very difficult to see, you know, her bargaining chips, what they are and, and what she absolutely wants to preserve. For the moment, we don't have an answer for that yet, but it's a very good question. You know, one quick question, if I could. The date calendar is September 20, November 1. December 13th. Do you just assume a rate increase? Is that a dangerous assumption right now? I don't I don't think the market uh, is expecting uh, anything in September with respect to the rates. Uh, the market's expecting that September will begin the process of unwinding the Fed's balance sheet. Then uh, thereafter you have a you know quite a number of economic uh, uh, reports including inflation reports which will uh, adjust the probability of an action in December. I think that's pretty much the open uh, moment for this year that Bill Dudley and others at the Fed have been alluding to. Neil, what happens to interest rates once they start normalizing? There's a line of thought saying that actually because we're due a correction or uh, you know some kind of recession soon, then they need to either hurry up and hike rates or they'll go further into negative. Oh, I think that uh, the structure of interest rates is likely to be much lower than in the past episodes for a long time yet into the future. Uh, and uh, I think it's also the case that the central banks don't want to get too far out ahead with respect to interest rates. They don't want to provoke the need for a new easing cycle. And so their main adjustment is going to be the balance sheet. Uh, over time. And I think it's quite remarkable that they haven't articulated a rationale for why they want to shrink their balance sheet. What harm has it done? Uh, but nonetheless, they seem intent upon it. Here in the States, uh, of course, they've already said relatively soon for commencement. There's almost a universal expectation that uh, Draghi from the ECB will speak to that at Jackson Hole and or announce it uh, uh, in the autumn. Uh, so I think it's the balance sheet that's going to be the main focus of this. And that gives rise to open questions about what does that do to the shape of the yield curve. Right. What's priced in at the moment? Well, my own view is that um, – well, let me say my own sense of the market's view is that balance sheet reduction 
will steepen the yield curve. That is to say, longer-term interest rates would tend to be, have, be under upward pressure. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's going to turn out to be the case. Uh, if you recall, during the uh, QE episodes in the past, interest rates actually tended to rise while the central bank was buying securities. Uh, we might get an episode here where interest rates would actually come down a bit as the Fed is feeding uh, the market uh, the, these new securities or refeeding the market these same securities. So, so, Neil, what does it mean that the Fed needs to watch out for? Is it in the communication? Do they need to have careful, you know, telegraphication of this? Or how do they telegraph it to the market so that they don't freak out? Well, there are a number of open questions uh, that the Fed has not yet articulated anything about. Uh, we have, with respect to their interest rate expectations, for example, the so-called dot plot, which tells you where they think interest rates would eventually get to. They haven't articulated anything like that with respect to what size balance sheet they expect to have down the road. They've said they're yeah. going to cut it. It's going to be bigger than it used yeah. to be. But how far? Where? Who who buys this stuff? I mean, I've, I, I brought this up uh, with a Swiss gentleman from Credit Suisse uh, yesterday writing trenchant notes. Uh, the name escapes me right now. I'm so sorry for that, folks. But uh, the, the basic idea, Neil Sausset, if SNB has a lot of Apple stock, I guess at some point we understand other people will buy it. Who buys the stuff on the U.S. balance sheet when they decide to unload it? Yeah, and let's think about the scale of that because in round numbers, the Fed uh, reduction of its holding of mortgages would more or less double the amount of mortgages available to the market. And the Fed's reduction of its treasury holdings would be sort of the equivalent of asking the market to absorb four years' worth of budget deficits yeah. over the next three years. How does that ha – brilliant, brilliantly said – how does that happen in reality? And the answer is we don't know, right? That's correct. And, and there are a lot of details about this with respect to what the Fed will let go of and, and yeah. uh, sequence and so forth. I mean, and Francine, I think this is absolutely critical, and this is something we've heard from Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed and James Bullard of St. Louis. There's a huge mystery – at every central bank of what happens when they when they hurt the switch right and this is something that of course the you know the ecb is probably more at risk of even you know compared to the fed is is we have an economy here that's quite fragile what is the biggest common policy mistake neil at this point for the fed would it be to keep interest rates lower for longer or to rise too quickly Oh, I think the evidence of the last 15 20 years is that no central bank has actually succeeded at exiting from zero interest rates and then and not having to go back to it in, in that direction. So I don't think going too, too slow is, is a risk here. I think the, the, the risky pros, uh, prospect would be if they went too fast. Do you worry more about the ECB than you do the Fed? Uh, not really. Um, I think the ECB has a special challenge in the sense that they're dealing with with a, a number of different sovereigns, whereas the U.S. has the advantage, if you will, it's dealing with only one. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think yeah. the Fed. I think the Fed is more central in this respect than the ECB. Why are companies not investing, Neil Sauce? I don't think they need to. The profit share yes. is doing just fine all by itself. Uh, we live in a time when the the benefits of economic activity seem to flow yeah. disproportionately to capital. And, and maybe that's uh, answer enough. Neil Suss, thank you so much. The Vice Chairman of Credit Suisse, he's been a, you know, on behalf of all of us at Surveillance at Bloomberg on the Economy, thank you for 10 years of crisis 
service uh, to economics and to our uh, global audience. James Trevitas, joining us on our phone lines. And saying James Trevitas barely describes the author of my book of the summer, The Leader's Workshop, another book out, Sea Power as well, and the author of an exceptionally important essay for Bloomberg View, uh, angst-ridden, oh, let me see, eight, I can do the math, James, seven days ago, the key to countering North Korea lies offshore. Admiral Stavitas, welcome back uh, to the program. I am reading John Keegan, The Face of Battle, and it is a, a very difficult read for people not steeped in the duty of the U.S. Naval uh, uh, Academy. If President Trump was to read Keegan's The Face of Battle, what would, should be or what would be his takeaway? Well, two things, Tom. Uh, one is The Face of Battle by Keegan is a, is a book about great leaders in times of crisis. And I think the two big takeaways that the president ought to absorb is, number one, keep your cool. Don't hyperbolize. Don't uh, shout out. Don't try to trash talk your opponent. Stay cool. Be less George Patton, more cool hand Luke. And the second thing that comes out from the face of battle is uh, be prepared for the unexpected um, because things will go wrong. And I think if he takes those two lessons into account, he'll be better positioned to face what's coming with North Korea. But what is critical here, and and I featured over this angst-ridden weekend, the sacrifice of General uh, Maurice Rose in World War II, who was under Patton in the Third Armored Division. Um, I think that the Patton that others perceive, including perhaps the president, is a George C. Scott Patton. It's a Hollywood Patton. Patton wasn't as patenty, perhaps, as we'd like to think. Am I right on that? You are absolutely correct. Patton was an intellectual. He was a reader. He was a fine strategist. Where he failed, and I fear our president is on the verge of making these same mistakes, is over-emotionalizing. As it says in The Godfather, uh, that marvelous book on leadership by Mario Puzo, don't make the mistake of hating your enemies. It clouds your judgment. We need leaders who stay calm, Tom. Can the president change, Admiral? I don't think so. I think what we are probably going to have to count on, as we've all been saying for some months now, is a coterie of smart, stable generals at the moment around him. Maybe he should have a few admirals. Who knows? But uh, I think that people like General John Kelly, the chief of staff, General Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, I know them all well. I've known Kelly for 40 years, Mattis for 20. These are stable actors who will put some kind of speed right. break on the president's more adventurous tendencies. Francine, uh, Francine, I want you to jump in here, but I've got to ask the news question, Admiral. Have you spoken to General Kelly, and would you serve the president? Um, I would not uh, choose to enter this administration, Tom. I don't think I'm a good policy fit. I disagree with many of the policies, and I'm not a particularly good personality fit either. Uh, I do email with John Kelly frequently, and I have the highest regard for him. Right, but Admiral, what would it take for you to change your mind on that? And this is a critical question, right? There are still vacancies that need to be filled. So how does this administration and how does the White House specifically get good people on board? 
I think it will depend on the degree to which General Kelly can impose a sense of order and bring order out of the chaos that is in the White House. The other cabinet departments, particularly Department of Defense, I think, are running along reasonably well. State is a little behind in terms of getting online because of those vacancies, Francine. But I think it's we need the trains to run a little closer to the schedule, if not on time. And that will not uh, happen unless General Kelly is given real authority. And I think the jury's out on how that's going to play out. Will the president ever be on prompt or on message? You know, can, can, can people actually no, no. force I think that's, change? I think that's highly, highly unlikely. And you saw that play out in <clears throat> domestic politics, yeah. of course, over the last three days, uh, where he went off prompt, um, landed himself in a extremely messy set of arguments, and then had to walk it back. So that's, I think, what we're looking at. I doubt that will change. But you can still modulate the policies and make them more orderly. And I think that'll be the task of those around him. I want you to help us, Admiral, with the people that are in the the Fletcher School classroom. They're like Ken Frazier. They're like Kevin Plank. They're like Brian Krasnick. Folks, these are the CEOs of Merck, Under Armour, and Intel. They've said goodbye to the president. It's a tough call. I mean, a given company, and Jeff Immelt, I thought, was quite articulate on this with General Electric. Of course, Mr. Immelt exiting if Mr. Flaherty takes over, what is your advice to CEOs? They're not wearing a uniform. They've each got their individual story, including the magnificent Ken Frazier, starting out his father was a janitor in Philadelphia, got into Penn State, got into Harvard Law, and made a go of it. And there's other stories. We've all got our own stories. What's your advice to CEOs who've got to make that decision on rights, individual and bigotry and hatred versus what's good for the company. I'll give you two reactions to that, uh, Tom, and and they both sort of stem from my days as Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. Um, A, and this is obvious, you have to follow your heart. You have to know where your emotional and your uh, absolute ethical personal red lines are. And that, in the end, has to trump everything. But then secondly, for a CEO or for a commander who's representing an enormous command, you you have to as well uh, look at how you're playing in the world and the impact you're having. In the case of a CEO, share price in a public company. And that matters. So getting that balance right for leaders is maybe the hardest thing. If I were going to name a book, it might surprise you, but it's To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. It's a book about taking the hard but correct course, not the easy wrong course. And I think those CEOs did the right thing both for themselves and ultimately for their company. Francine, I sort of thought Kevin Plank, he sort of looks like Gregory Peck. So I think it sort of (laughs) of works. Yeah, I'm not sure Francine is old enough to have seen that movie. That's true. I am, I am. I'm a film buff, Admiral. (laughs) Francine, jump in here, please. Admiral, what will change? You know, I've been thinking about the North Korean crisis, and actually I was thinking about how the reaction of the world would have been different had it been another administration talking about fire and fury. Are we not taking the president seriously enough when it comes to geopolitics? 
No, this is a, an absolutely correct observation, Francine, and increasingly, as I travel around the world doing events representing the Fletcher School, what I hear from Europeans, from Asians, from Latin Americans, from Africans is, well, we're learning just not to listen to what the president says, but instead to watch the actions of the U.S. government. That takes away a powerful tool from the U.S. government. If you cannot reliably depend on the chief executive to transmit yeah. a coherent message, you are handicapped severely globally. And I think we will pay the price for that going forward. We're going to rip up the strip and, uh, script rather, and come back with James Trevitas of the United States Navy. I want to speak to him about our sailors and our officers at sea here in the uh, northern Asia Pacific Ocean. We will do that here in a bit off of his wonderful essay on Bloomberg View, including that ship accident that we had a number of weeks uh, ago. James Javidis with us, Admiral, uh, of course, at the uh, the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Admiral Javidis, you, you open sea power, your wonderful new book about our oceans. And there you are, freshly scrubbed out of, I believe, Annapolis on the USS Jewett. So if the USS Jewett was off Korea, off 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 Japan, and the water's a little choppy. How do sailors not fall off the ship? What's the safety mechanism of our sailors and officers at sea around Korea now so there's just something basic like they don't fall off the ship? Amazingly, we still have sailors occasionally fall off ships, and tragically, we just lost a yes. young lieutenant just a week ago. Um, the safety measures are pretty obvious. We have uh, railings that go all the way around that come up to about uh, a bit above your waist. We have lookouts posted up <clears throat> above the decks to observe in case someone does fall overboard. When the seas are especially unruly, we'll make an announcement. We'll bring people inside, Tom, what we call the skin of the ship. And finally, we operate the ship. Uh, we sail it through the water in a way that minimizes turbulence heading into the seas, not off axis, and so on. So we take care about that. It is a real concern. It occasionally yeah. happens, but we're well prepared. We're honored at Bloomberg Surveillance to have your attendance. Admiral Mullen was with us the other day. Let me ask you the same question I asked Mike. The idea here that we can shoot a missile out of the air is that science fiction? Is it something on TV? How do you guys actually shoot a missile out of the air? Um, it is not science fiction. We do this quite a bit. We practice it. Uh, as a younger officer, I commanded a guided missile destroyer that steamed around with a couple of hundred missiles that would do exactly that. And the way you do it is you have a radar that looks out 250 miles. It can track something as small as a beer can floating through the air. We lock it up with the radar. Uh, we then alert the fire control team. We open up a hatch in the ship, and the missile pops up vertically. It moves at uh, many times the speed of sound. And, yes, we can knock down incoming missiles. I have done it personally on many occasions, and it's something we practice and are quite capable of doing. Admiral, can the U.S. try a surgical strike on North Korea? 
We could do one, Francine, but if we did, Kim Jong-un would interpret it as an attack on his regime. He would believe that we were coming to kill him and his family, and I believe he would respond aggressively uh, against South Korea and in the process kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. That's why even a surgical strike um, has deep, deep consequences and is probably not the option for which the president Mm -hmm. should reach at this point. Right, and this is because of the North Korean artillery installations, right, along the border, then can be activated very fast. It is exactly, and they are on a hair trigger, if you will, a dead man switch. If uh, (laughs) signals simply stop coming from Pyongyang, you will see those artillery shells starting to land in Seoul almost immediately. So it is a a very uh, dangerous situation for which uh, an initial military strike from the United States is not warranted. Right. Uh, Admiral, one final question as you, as you uh, salvage your voice here, and we thank you for your time <laughs> today. If the president was to parachute into Annapolis 101 and enjoyed E.B. Ned Potter <laughs> in teaching the basics of our Navy history, what's the number one thing President Trump needs to know from Ned Potter? He needs to understand that so many times in history, it's a naval encounter, a maritime battle that truly changes the course of history. And this goes back to the Battle of Salamis between the Greeks and the Persians, through the Battle of Actium, which decided the fate of the Roman Empire, to the Battle of Trafalgar, which saves the British Empire and pulls forward into our history, Tom, in the Battle of Midway in World War II. Big doors swing on small hinges, and so often those small hinges are maritime in character. James Favritas, thank you so much. He's the author of Sea Power, which we've been talking about, a fabulous uh, sprawl across the oceans of the world, including the South China Sea, which is where a lot of the tension is right now. And, of course, Travitas has my book of the summer, The Leader's Bookshelf. I can't say enough about it. This is 50, maybe 60 books on leadership, and it's not what you'd think it includes is, is the Admiral mentioned to kill a mockingbird. It includes Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. Francine, that was by an author from the Mississippi River from a few uh, years, years yeah, ago. We, we <clears throat> learn it here as well. Oh, do you? Very we we do. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely. It's good to know that. It's actually, well, I got to reread it. I, I did that. I re- reread Tale of Two Cities. Couple years ago, and that was um, a whole different take than when you were 17. We continue. Francine Lacroix and Tom Keene thrilled you with us on economics, finance, investment, on international relations, and Brexit. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.